0: this uh earlier this morning i was as many of you know i'm a student of history that's that's what i majored in in my undergraduate work and i love to read about our leadership in the past pray for our leadership of the current administration and leaders in washington i was reading an account of a friend of abraham lincoln who was outside of his office his personal quarters as he agonized over the nation and over uh the war that uh was raging and it was just before thanksgiving um in 1863 And on his knees, uh, without knowing anyone was there, he was crying out, God, Father, the one who did give wisdom to Solomon, please give me wisdom that our union might stand. Today is uh, Memorial Day in our nation, or it's a Sunday before Memorial Day in our nation's history. Abraham Lincoln was not a perfect man. I'm sure there are mixed emotions in here maybe even of what kind of leader he might have been or was. But it cannot be debated that leaders like him have made this nation very strong because they rooted the success of this nation in the providence, love, and sovereignty of God. And what's so significant to me about that prayer, there's lots of prayers. George Washington's prayer journal, I read it uh, this week, where he day by day, morning and night, wrote out a prayer that he said every day of the week all the way down to Thursday, confessing his sins and asking God for wisdom and all these things. And there's just countless places you could go and leaders you could turn to. What was significant to me about Abraham Lincoln was this, that he realized the nation would stand as long as the same God who gave Solomon wisdom gave the leaders in his day wisdom to lead the country. And when that God decided not to give them the wisdom necessary, the nation would fall apart. We should remember that. We should remember the hundreds of thousands who serve our country today and every day, faceless and voiceless as they may be. They are a blessing to us from God. They are the reason that we do not have to defend ourselves individually uh, as a nation, but yet we are able to depend on them night and day to watch over us. And there are hundreds and literally thousands of families who have suffered grief and loss. um, The picture, and Robertson does a great job of putting together the PowerPoint. And the picture of those stones reminds me of the first time I went to Washington as a little boy. Probably one of the things, besides Peter Marshall, who had inspired me to be a historian, was to look out over Arlington Cemetery and to see literally endless graves, white grave markers, And to know that their blood set me free, literally, in this nation. I have freedom because they were willing to die. And my dad said to us as a family standing there looking at these graves, you know, there is one grave that has made us free. And it's empty. And he said to our family, Remember, the Bible says in Romans 5, Scarcely will a man lay down his life even for a good man. Yet for a good man one might even think about dying. But Jesus Christ died for us while we were his enemies. And so the backdrop of Memorial Day for me has always been Memorializing those who die in our place literally every day to protect us but the background of that is much deeper it's that one grave which stands empty and speaks freedom and Jesus' words for Shad and I say them often he who the son sets free is free indeed and so we've been set free And we have experienced freedom experientially by the grace of God through the sacrifice of thousands of men and women. And so we need to be thankful for that, ever mindful of that. Wendell White, I want to ask if you would would just voice a prayer for us of thanksgiving to God on behalf of His sacrifice for us that we might be free and those who are abroad. Pray also, Wendell, for their protection and safety and for our leaders, as Paul called us to pray at all times everywhere for the leaders, the kings. And so pray for our leadership also. Wendell, would you pray for us?
1: For men such as our president, uh, uh, leaders, for uh, people who believe that freedom costs, and that we uh, must decide which side we're on. And that they have chosen the side of uh, freedom and democracy in order that men may uh, worship their Creator and that they might have an opportunity to hear the word of God. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this.
0: We're drawing to the end of this narrative section in John chapter 1. Last time we were in John chapter 1 together two weeks ago, we talked about Andrew and Simon Peter and and the fact that there was family evangelism. Unlike us, and we are guilty often, I know I'll speak of myself, often I am guilty of disregarding uh, my grandfather and others who aren't believers because it's uncomfortable. They might write me out of the family. They might, uh, you know, never speak to me again. I might not get grandma's good cooking anymore if I speak to him about Christ. Andrew took the approach of running to his brother first and preaching the truth or telling him the truth and calling him, come and see. Today we draw in on the end looking at two other characters, two other followers. Two insignificant followers and one magnificent Lord. John through 51 says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel, Jesus answered him. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We're often guilty of looking at the disciples and seeing superhumans, people that are superheroes like the Marvel comic books or something with these unbelievable courageous powers to conquer evil in the world and yet when the bible writers write about them often they write about their flaws their shortcomings their natural selves and i I would say to you they do that john does that here about nathaniel and uh uh, philip and I, i hope to show that because the reality is the the disciples are more like us than we like to at first believe we are the ones who like to put them on a pedestal of unattainable glory where we could never be like them. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible keeps them as humans, saved by the grace of Jesus Christ through His own blood. And so I want to kind of do that. Well, To do that, we want to look at these two insignificant followers. Philip is the first one that's introduced to us in the text in verse 43. His name means the lover of horses. Chuck and Kathy would appreciate that. Loving horses sometimes. Uh, nobody loves horses all the time. But um, he was a, his name meant lover of horses. It's a Greek name, but we don't need to make the jump and assumption that he was a Greek. He was a Jew. It was used sometimes of, of Jewish men. Their, names was, their name was Philip. But unlike Simon, who last time we made this great uh, talk about how Simon and Peter and the rock and, and what all that meant. In significance, here's this insignificant name, Philip. You know, can't you see him going around the campfire at night? What's your name? Peter, what does it mean? The Rock. That's what Jesus called me. I'm the Rock. You get to Philip. What's your name mean, man? I love horses.
1: <laughs>
0: yes. You know, I'm excited about that. So he just seems insignificant from the very beginning, even by his name. You know, in a day where names mean so much. He's given this name. Seems frivolous almost. Yeah, I think it communicates to us they're regular and normal people. You know, my name doesn't mean much. Uh, It means the son of a farmer. Now, my adopted dad is a farmer, and if I was into all of these, uh, you know, signs and innuendos, I guess he was... My mom knew that in some mystical way before she married my adopted dad, but, I mean, that's silly. It's just my name doesn't mean a whole lot. I'm insignificant. History's not going to write novel after novel and chronicle after chronicle of the adventures of (laughs) Carlton I'm insignificant I really am and I'm comfortable with that because if I truly seek to be insignificant and decrease as John the Baptist did and let him increase then all that matters will stand out about me that he gave his life in the service of the Lord and the Lord used him powerfully and mightily what else would we want said about us it's better than being nicknamed the rock or anything else we have John, uh, we have philip presented to us in this way and the other uh, gospels don't they just lift, list him with the 12 they don't give any additional information about him he's just a nameless i mean a name on a face maybe but we're left not knowing all that much about Him. Now, John does present Him to us several times. Hold your place here and flip to John 6, verse 7. Jesus is preparing to feed the 5,000 men. And, uh, you know, Jesus is a masterful teacher. He wants to show him a lesson. He doesn't want them to miss the lesson, so He introduces it by asking a question. He turns to Philip in the presence of this large crowd, and says, where are we, in verse uh, 5, where are we to buy bread, so that the, these people may eat? Listen to Philip. Verse 7, Philip answers, 200 denarii, would not buy enough bread, for each of them, to get a little bit. What a statement. You know, by this time, he's followed Christ, a little while, he's seen miracles, he saw the miracle at Canaan, he saw other testaments to the power of Jesus. I mean, they ran out of wine at a wedding, and Jesus filled up foot-washing pots and turned it into the greatest wine any man had ever drank. So, he asked, where are we going to get money to buy bread? You're expecting this superhero to say, well, we don't have enough money, but you can just make some bread. He had evidence for that. Jesus made wine when they were out of wine. Why not bread when they don't have bread? But he doesn't leap to this great stand of faith, does he? He begins to rationalize like me and you when we face life problems. I don't have enough money in the bank account. I had not saved enough. I'm not secure enough. There's not enough. I guess we defeated, he says, in a sense. You couldn't get enough in a year to feed these people a little bit. Almost ho-hum, almost in disbelief of the power of Jesus Christ. Yet he had reason to believe. And yet John shows us his normal, his natural self. There's not a lot of faith here. He's not a superhuman. He doesn't make some bold proclamation about the provision of God. The fact is, Philip responds just like we probably would respond faced with the same situation. John 12, 21 through 22, is the account of John. When the Greeks come to find Jesus, you know, they make this profound statement. I've seen it on at least three different pulpits I preached from. John, you might have seen this. Sir, we would see Jesus. You know, this, this, that's the statement. They make that statement. These men are coming. I mean, what a softball for evangelism. Just throw it underhanded to us, God. We want to see Jesus. I mean, what would your response be? Okay, I don't have to tell them anything. I don't have to know a bunch of stuff. I don't have to be trained. You want to see Jesus? Here he is. Go see him. Not Philip. Look what Philip does in the text. (laughs) Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip took the people to Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to draw too much from this, but look at it. Philip has been following Jesus for oh, about three years at this point. And yet he still doesn't have enough decisive confidence in, in the fact that Jesus is the God of the universe to when people ask, just take them to Him. He has to go to a mediator. I was talking to Andrew McLeod before church started, and I said, you know, if you'd have been here two weeks ago, you would have heard us talk about your character in the Bible. There's two times he's mentioned in the Scripture. Remember in John. And what are the two occurrences we said? He was taking people to Jesus. He took Peter to Jesus. He took these Greeks to Jesus. That's all we know about Andrew. But what a testimony. He's pointing people to the light, as John the Baptist said. What's the testimony of Philip? he has to go to somebody who can point them to the light. It strikes me about this man, man Philip. Again, we're left grasping for this superhuman who had superhuman courage. This is a strange account that seems to reflect the indecisiveness of Philip and the inability that he had to just simply open his mouth and take someone to Christ. John fourteen eight through 9 again we find Philip at the Last Supper. And he says, Lord, show us the Father, in verse 8, and it is enough for us. Again, he's been with Jesus over three years now. Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? This has to be a measure of comfort for any of us who attempt to grow in our faith and help others grow in their faith. You know, as a man who tries to give his life away to other men, sometimes I'm left driving home in my car thinking, How long is this going to take before they just see Jesus? and just trust Jesus and put all this other stuff aside. And as I'm getting on them in my mind or out loud, if you ever drive by me and I'm riding down the road and you think I'm talking to myself, I probably am. I do that a lot. I have the best discussions in the world with myself. I always understand myself. And the point's always made and well taken. And it's always profound. But yet, in the middle of my rant about people who don't get it, I remember I don't get it very well. And that I often have this same problem. Come on, Jesus, show me. Come on, Jesus, show me the Father. I don't have enough to believe yet. I want to believe. That's what Philip's saying. I want to believe, but you've got to show me the Father. And Jesus says, I've been doing it for over three years now. How long is it going to take? Philip. Once again, shown to be inadequate in his ability, insufficient in his knowledge. And this is is not your typical comic hero, is it? Your superhero with miraculous powers. This is a common man. This disciple seems more like one of us. Philip's not mentioned for us except in the list in Acts. In the history of the church, he goes silent. We don't know. Now, the Philip in Acts 8 is the evangelist. And so there seems to be a strain to make it a separate man from the apostle. He calls him the evangelist. He makes him another being there, another human being. And so Philip here is silent in the church history. He doesn't go found some great movement for Christ that we know of. He just kind of fades away in anonymity and in indecisiveness and in a lack of knowledge and in struggling faith. He just kind of goes into history. Now, I'm not saying he lost his faith. Obviously, he continued to work for Christ. Obviously, he's not disparaged in the Scripture or said to have turned his back like demons or some other. But Philip is just a disciple, just a man just like us in so many ways. And then we have Nathaniel, this second character in the study, in this story. Nathaniel, God has given. Okay, now we've got a name that means something. You know, God has given, a profound name. You know, not like the horse lover, but he's God-given. The synoptic gospels call him Bartholomew, which is actually a surname, son of Ptolemy. In other words, they often said Bar-Jonah, which meant son of Jonah, or Bartholomew, which meant son of, many believed son of Ptolemy. John calls him Nathaniel. The only other time that John mentions this man, Nathanael, is in 21 verse 2 when they're fishing and he says, Nathanael of Cana was with them. Okay? Fishing. So, Nathanael, again, is very anonymous to us and kind of left with a lot of blanks. There is some information about him in this passage that's very important. Nathanael seems to have been a student of the Old Testament. When Philip goes to him, he says, the one that Moses and the prophets have written about. We found him. We found him. And so that has significant meaning. And then again, Jesus calls him an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. He was a true Israelite. He was not an Israelite according to the flesh only, but one of the heart. Paul says in Romans 2 verse 29, But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Jesus is actually giving Nathanael praise by saying he's a true Israelite. He's not just following ritual or the faith of his Father. He has real faith in a real God. And so he is a true Israelite. But he also calls him the one who has to have deceit in him. And uh, some of the texts say he doesn't have a hint of Jacob. Some of the commentators say he doesn't have a hint of Jacob in him. You know, the great patriarch who was good at lying a lot. And uh, so, and getting his way by deceit. He says, you're not one of those. You're not deceitful. You're straightforward. You mean what you say and you say what you mean. When you saw Nathaniel, you knew what you were getting. He didn't put on airs. He was A man, a common man, a faithful man, a man who loves God. He's a true follower. He's not a man of false perception. And when you look at Nathaniel, you get what you see. But he's a common man with basic abilities. He's not heralded as a hero. Nathaniel is also a skeptic. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? sounds a lot like thomas later in the gospel where thomas says unless i put my fingers in his nail prints and stick my hand in the side i will not believe i need more evidence philip than you coming and saying we found the messiah i need to see him i need to touch him i need to be verified that something can come out of nazareth that's worth talking about he's probably uh first of all nazareth is unmentioned in the old testament bethlehem is mentioned not nazareth and so Rightfully so, if you knew the Old Testament, you'd wonder what what does Nazareth have to do with it? Why is He Jesus of Nazareth? And then you would think Nazareth and Cana are only ten miles apart geographically. A little small town village rivalry must have existed, maybe existed. And He's expressing this hatred towards this insignificant little village that's not worthy to be thought of as able to house the Messiah. And so you find these things in His tone. He's a skeptic. He's a common Jew, and it may also be the words of a man with a rival in in Nazareth. So in the passage, we see two insignificant men, Philip and Nathanael. But we see one magnificent Lord. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy according to verse 45. Whenever the Old Testament prophet speaks of the promised Messiah, they're speaking of Jesus Christ. The title, Moses and the Prophets, is the common way the New Testament writers spoke about the Old Testament in a group. they grouped them together this way. And Philip says, we have found the one that you've been reading about all of your life. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. We can believe in him. One thing to note is that Philip is not denying the virgin birth when he says he's the son of Joseph. Probably Jesus has not fully disclosed the fact of his virgin birth, although they had that in Isaiah chapter 9. It was obscure in some ways and he legally was the son of Joseph. Joseph was his daddy. He was his, his earthly father. And so, it's not a denial of the divine nature of Jesus. It's An understanding of who He was and what house He lived in. Jesus is not only the one the prophet spoke of. Jesus is all-knowing. This is the most interesting thing for me. I found myself puzzled as I was studying this about why He was so convinced by Jesus' words. Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree and he says rabbi you are the son of god the king of israel i mean what is it that's so convincing about this statement what what why does it matter and so you dig for meaning or is this some kind of parabolic statement or prophetic statement or and you just can't find anything in the history this wasn't predicted that he would do this what what causes this great belief well I believe, and along with others, John MacArthur and others have made mention of this, Leon Morris and other great commentators, commentators have said that actually what he's saying is, Nathaniel, when you were meditating under that fig tree, when you were having your what we would call quiet time and worshiping God, I saw you. I was there. This actually is Jesus saying, I'm omniscient. I know all things. I am the God you worship. The fig tree in the the Israelite nation was an extension of the home. The home was so crowded, often one big room where we cooked and slept and talked and conversated. When you needed peace, they would plant a fig tree outside and the person would go to this fig tree and sit and be quiet and meditate. It's often where they studied the Old Testament Scriptures, prayed to God asking for whatever their needs were to be met. And so this is where Philip found Nathanael in a quiet time, in a devotional time, talking to God the Father. And Jesus says to him, when he says, How do you know me? How do you know me? The skeptic. How do you know I'm a true Israelite? And how do you know I'm not deceitful? Basically, Jesus said, Because I am the one you speak with, In that quiet time you have under the fig tree. I am the one who made you, I am the one who you worship. This is why this supreme devotion, falling down at his knees, at his on his knees in front of Jesus with you, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. He not only said you by saying this that you're the King of Israel, but he said, You're my king, you're my Messiah. I can only imagine as he heard Jesus speak and revealed to him this secret private knowledge that no one else could have known. The verses that flooded his mind. In Psalm 2, verses 6-7 through 7, it says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Zephaniah 3.15 says, The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Micah 5.2 came probably to his mind, as the writer says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, to too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Perhaps all these scriptures and many more flooded the mind of Nathanael as he heard Jesus say, I know you because I was with you under the fig tree. The man, the God you worshiped is standing before you. The God you've prayed to your whole life and believed in with faith, unable to see, but believing what you could not see. I am Him. I am the Messiah. I am the King. He revealed to Him His omniscience, His all knowing nature. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies. He is the Messiah, and He is also our connection to heaven and earth. The last thing is in the last verse. Jesus says to him, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Genesis 28, verses 12 through 13 say, And Jacob dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. Jesus, by saying, you will see greater things than these, I tell you, heaven will be opened, and you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Was drawing back this Nathanael, to his understanding of what Jacob experienced in the vision this was not a new revelation, this was an old one with flesh on it now Jacob saw into the future that there would be a bridge between God and man there would be a mediator, there would be an access into the throne of God and in his vision it was a ladder and Lord God was over that vision as the ascension and dissension of angels occurred that night and so it seems cryptic and prophetic and now Jesus says basically I am the ladder I am the bridge between you and God now you worship in truth now you have the answer to the prophets now you have the promise standing before you I am the mediator between God And you, I am the one you've worshipped all your life. I am the one you called to under the fig tree. I'm the one you've read about. I'm the one you've talked about. I'm the one you've longed for. I am here and I am with you. He is worthy, Jesus is, of our submission and our belief. The only one who can change the heart of a skeptic. Take the normal man and make him superhuman. He is the only one who can take up Take you up the ladder of salvation into the heavenly places. The question for you is Will you be Philip and Nathaniel, or will you remain a skeptic, cold of heart, dull of ears? Will you hear the truth and believe it and receive it and cry out to Him? You are the King of my life. You are the answer to my life problem of need of God. You are the only answer to all of the questions. Will you trust in this heavenly mediator today so that you may be saved? I pray that you will. I pray that you will. I pray that you will see Him and believe. I will say again as we end this narrative and end this sermon. As I said last time, the Word of God never couches a statement of salvation as an offer to you. It never says, if you want it, you can have it. What God says is, and what Jesus said is, a command. Repent and believe. You see, whether you want it or not, He is the King. Whether you want it or not. Whether you believe it or not, He is the King. If He will be your personal King... You must obey the command. You must repent and you must believe. And so that's where we are today. As we leave John 1, we've seen God, God the Son, revealed in the flesh. We've seen His witness, John the Baptist. We've seen Him as the light of the world. We've seen Him now through the lives of common men like you and me and the response of come and see and so I'm saying come and see let's reflect together over our time in the word and think you have several things you can deal with the Lord about possibly you are lost you've never come to Christ you've never seen him as the mediator you've never seen him as the Savior and today for the first time the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes it made you alive, and now you see. And so today would be a great time to celebrate that and to say to the Lord, you are the Messiah, you are the King, you are my King. I submit. And so I want to give you that opportunity. Maybe you're a believer who's been quiet for too long, unwilling to say come and see to those around you, unwilling to say i want to take you to jesus unwilling to believe that he is the intimate god who is at your appointed quiet time and that you really are in relationship with him and you just need to renew that understanding with him i want to give you that in a moment of silence and then we will close in a word of prayer carlton brown after a time of silence if you would pray to end our time together let's have a time of prayer